When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Film Spotting SVU is presented by Movies on Demand on cable, bringing the latest indie movies into your home at the touch of a button. Sunlight Junior, starring Matt Dillon and Naomi Watts, is available on demand now before it hits theaters. Premiering October 11th is the controversial Escape from Tomorrow, about a family's theme park vacation that turns into a surreal nightmare. Shot on location in Orlando, it's available on demand before it hits theaters. The latest independent films are ready when you are with Movies on Demand on cable. The Art House is now in your house. This episode is also brought to you by Shutterstock.com. With over a million high-quality video clips, Shutterstock helps you take your creative projects to the next level. For 25% off your new account, go to Shutterstock.com and use offer code SVU1013. New York City, this is Film Spotting, streaming video unit. I'm Allison Wilmore. And I'm Matt Singer. In this installment, we look at whether or not filmmaker Leos Carex is able to breathe new life into that well-worn cliche of a painter with failing eyesight falling in love with a fire-breathing acrobat while they're both living on a famous French landmark in The Lovers on the Bridge. Later in the episode, we'll bring you cue shots where we recommend some titles to rent or stream at home right now, all centered on a common theme. In honor of the lovers on the bridge, we were going to discuss some other dark love stories. But Matt, your insistence that both The Exorcist and Full Metal Jacket were, in their own ways, romances, made it clear that your ideas about the category were a little more complicated than could fit into an hour-long episode. So instead, we're doing films set in Paris. They're not? I still don't understand. How are they not? You explain it to me. Um, I'm putting the burden of proof on you, Allison. Tune in to a special 10-hour episode of Films The Great Romances of Film by Matt Singer, (laughs) including The Exorcist, Full Metal Jacket, Sallow, and more. (laughs) Yes, the romances, all the love, all the passion. Yes, uh, sponsored by dot dot dot. Um, But first up is Opening Break, a segment we do in conjunction with our sponsor, Movies on Demand on Cable, in which we spotlight a few notable films new on demand on cable. Matt, what are our picks this week? Well, it's good that it was my turn to pick out some movies because I got to talk about some romances, even though you tried to stop me. I wouldn't (laughs) let you. I soldiered on and I've got three really fabulous romances to recommend on VOD on this episode, starting with... Man of Tai Chi, the fine romance and directorial debut of Keanu Reeves, who actually does a very respectable job uh, directing this movie. Sometimes uh, we talk about actors becoming good directors. They work with good directors. They learn. They pay attention. And then they they become good directors in themselves. You know, George Clooney hanging out with Steven Soderbergh, and he becomes a really good director in his own right. Ben Affleck was paying attention to... Michael Bay and Kevin (laughs) Smith. Uh, I mean, whatever. You get the idea. In Keanu's case, there's a guy who made some of the most awesome kung fu movies of all time. And he was clearly uh, paying attention while he was doing it because he's made a very good one here. He co-stars in the film as the super serious mega evil villain. So basically, Allison, in one decade, 
Neo has transformed into Agent Smith, which is kind of interesting in and of itself that he cast himself in like the evil Agent Smith role. The conflicted hero in this case is played by Tiger Chan, who's a martial artist and stuntman who worked with Keanu Reeves actually on the Matrix films. They, they go back that far. And he cast him as the uh, hero here. The results aren't quite as uh, effective as when Quentin Tarantino cast a stunt woman in Death Proof. I don't think Tiger Chan is quite as good an actor. But uh, it's still a very successful and very, again, respectable uh, uh, film here. In the story, Tiger plays this young Tai Chi master who enjoys competing in martial arts tournament, which is already kind of against the psychology or the philosophy of Tai Chi because Tai Chi is very peaceful and nonviolent, uh, what have you. So he's already kind of uh, against the grain of Tai Chi. He works a day job as a courier. He's very poor. So naturally, when the Tai Chi temple that he trains and prays at is in danger of being knocked down by evil developers, he's very easily seduced by Keanu Reeves' character, who is like this evil billionaire named Donica, into joining what else, an underground fight club, where rich people wager on deadly martial arts battles. How would you like to test how good you are, Tiger? Or could become? No referees. No rules. Pure fighting. I can't fight Tai Chi for mine. It's dishonorable. We want to see a pure-hearted man of Tai Chi become a killer. He says he's just undergone fighting. Something else. Killer be killed, Tiger. That's what I want. And there's some themes about the battle between uh, modernity and tradition, between capitalism and spiritualism, between the beauty of martial arts, between the brutality of martial arts. And I think there's enough there that kind of elevates elevates the movie into a, a higher level of martial arts film. And, and the choreography is by Yuan Wu Ping, who did also did the Matrix movies with Keanu. So that kind of elevates it a little as well. And I actually think Keanu Reeves uses Keanu Reeves very well in this film. You know, he plays everything deadly straight, but there is an element of camp to everything he does. And there's a few lines he repeats over and over again, including this one that I'm personally trying to make into an internet meme, and it's not working because no one has seen this movie, but maybe if everyone on the podcast audience watches, maybe it'll, it'll happen. And the line is, You owe me a life. And he says that to... Tiger Chan about a hundred thousand times in this movie over and you owe me a life. So I want to, I'm really trying to make that happen. And uh, I enjoyed Man of Tai Chi. It's available now on VOD. And in closing, Allison, San Dimas High School Football Rules. And uh, who are the lovers in this romance? Uh, Keanu Reeves and Tiger Chan. It's a it's a love hate relationship. Right, right. Sorry, they love. I can't believe I asked. They all they both love Tai Chi, and kind of fighting. And they dislike when they're not fighting each other. Got it. They're stark. It's a Romeo and Juliet. Essentially, <laughs> it's like West Side Story with more spin kicks. I mean, actually, less spin kicks because that was what, what there was some spin kicking in West Side Story. Less finger snapping than West Side Story. How's that? How much singing? Not as much as I would like, but it's it's instead of singing, there's fighting. Right. If they were singing and fighting, it, it might, would be amazing. It would be even better. Yeah. But anyway, that's Man of Tai Chi. 
recommended for the martial arts fans out there, and it's available now on VOD. Very quickly, we've got two other recommendations, both definitely romances. The first, which will be available on VOD starting on October 15th, is Drug War, directed by Johnny Toe. Uh, this is uh, more Asian action for for the uh, Asian action fans out there. It's a it's a very classically Johnny Toe style film. If you've seen any of his stuff, it's got undercover cops, alliances between drug dealers and cops, uh, the heroes and the villains. It's very hard to tell the difference between them sometimes. There's lots of gray areas. You don't know who can be trusted and what's happening at all times. It's basically about a cop who nabs this drug dealer, and because the drug dealer has kind of like a death sentence. Hanging over his head, he agrees to help the cop take down this big drug smuggling ring, but you're never really sure whether the drug dealer can be trusted. That's sort of the big if hanging over the plot. And I'm actually not the biggest Johnny Doe fan in the world, but I actually uh, – I like this this one a lot. This one I think – you know, like to me, he sometimes he's got hits and misses. Uh, this one to me was a big hit. You know, really good action, really great acting, very intense uh, acting and – good script it's definitely one of his better movies i think uh so that's drug war and it's available on vod starting on october 15th and finally i mentioned it at the top of the show it's available on october 11th it's escape from tomorrow directed by randy moore uh i'm not the biggest fan of this movie but certainly this is a really fascinating story if you haven't heard about it essentially this guy randy moore made an entire movie at uh, disney world disneyland covertly Gorilla style with no permission from Disney. He just snuck into the park with his actors, filmed them all with little, you know, uh, consumer cameras, and they got away with it somehow. They managed to make the entire movie, you know, uh, in the shadow of the of the, the Cinderella's castle and the Epcot Dome and all this. And it definitely adds an interesting hook to this surreal movie about this family. The father has just lost his job at the start of the movie. He's kind of having a mental breakdown and. The reality around him seems to break down into this disturbing kind of Lynchian nightmare of of uh, the dark side of Disney. Uh, I, I, again, I don't know if it really works as well in execution as it does in theory. It feels very much like me to a, uh, as a first film because uh, it's kind of messy. And I, you can tell the director wants to say something, but I'm not sure he ever figured out what that something is. But again, it's it's the, the the chutzpah alone here on display makes it worth watching and wrestling with. And even if there are better movies, I think out there, there's few more interesting ones. Uh, recently, this is something uh, you know. It's, it's it's unbelievable just that it's being released at all, for that matter. So it is very cool that uh, you'll be able to see it. That's Escape from Tomorrow, and it'll be available on VOD starting on October 11th. We're very happy to have Shutterstock.com back as a sponsor of this episode of Film Spotting SVU. At Shutterstock.com, you'll find the perfect video for your next creative project, whether it's for your website, advertisement, multimedia presentation, or other type of film project. You can choose from over a million high-quality stock video clips, 2D animation, and 3D motion graphics. They have clips in a variety of digital formats, and most come in HD. Shutterstock sources video clips from around the world and puts them at your fingertips, and many contributors to Shutterstock are professional filmmakers. Shutterstock reviews each video individually for content and quality before adding it to its library, and Shutterstock adds 12,000 video clips each week, so every time you visit, you'll find something new. Shutterstock gives you the assets you need to bring your creative projects to the next level, and they make it easy with sophisticated tools so you can search and drill down by category, clip resolution, contributor name, and more. And as you find the video assets you're looking for, you can save them to a clip box 
and you can access your selections anytime and share them with other team members. Shutterstock has flexible pricing, and you can choose from individual clips or video packs, and you can download clips in HD so you can save them with standard definition or other web formats. You can try Shutterstock today by signing up for a free account. There's no credit card needed. Just start an account, begin using Shutterstock to help imagine what your next project could be like, and save video selections you find to your clip box. Once you decide to purchase, use offer code SVU1013, and new accounts will receive 25% off any package. That's Shutterstock.com, and for 25% off new accounts, use offer code SVU1013. We thank Shutterstock for their support. All right, we decided on Paris movies as the theme of this episode because The Lovers on the Bridge is set, although not entirely shot, as I later learned and we can discuss in Paris. This is an interesting category because uh, it's very large, actually. It is very large. There's almost... Too many choices, frankly. We probably should have gone with something else, but it was too late to change. Well, we had a lot of requests for French films, which was an even broader category. So That's Paris true. seemed like an easier way to narrow that down. I guess. Then again, Paris is such an important all city French in the history of cinema. Of also, yeah, yeah, yeah. that it's 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 a setting for that's important for a lot of films, including. We just wanted to throw a few out there before yes, we get to do. our picks. Are they romances? Um, Everything's a romance. Yes. In, in Paris, in Paris, ever, that's is true. Romantic. That's true. Um, but you know, some of the kind of great f- classics of film, like Breathless and The Four Hundred Blows, uh, set in Paris, streaming on Hulu Plus right now. Or uh, it also lends itself well as a city to these big, outsized uh, romances. But <gasps> you know, that are My also favorite. that are also kind of stylishly you know memorable something like amelie mm-hmm. which is currently streaming on amazon i thought you were gonna say like sleepless night the beautiful romance about a cop punching a people restaurant. in the faces yes. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um or moulin rouge oh which you yes. can rent on voodoo or youtube or not or not or i would probably skip it yeah yeah uh, <laughs> and just to counter those i should also throw out la n Oh. set you know in the the Deeply suburbs romantic yes set in the suburbs of paris as well as in the city of paris yeah. about a side of paris that you don't see in amelie truly uh and that is currently streaming on hulu plus as well mm. but you know it's it's a, it's a big city and also one that's very important to cinema so you, you, it's tough to generalize about it in any way i would actually it's not it doesn't really apply to what we're talking about uh in terms of the main film this time but i think something about people visiting paris could be its own interesting category there's a lot there are a lot of films about coming to paris to attempt to live in paris or visiting visiting and things going horribly wrong horribly wrong there's a lot of like anxiety that americans on screen face when they come to paris they're 
wives get mysteriously kidnapped or they forget who they are and they, they you know i'm not your wife you must be crazy and there's a there's a bunch of movies like that yeah and also ones in which there's this big divide between expectations and i feel like and then reality mm. you know because it's paris paris and then if it doesn't live up to being paris then they're problems yeah yeah it's funny because normally when we pick a subject i do a ton of research and, you know, like, what are the best movies? And then, okay, these are too obvious. What are the ones that are a little off the beaten path so that maybe some listeners haven't heard them before and we're recommending, you know, a little more usefully things that maybe people haven't seen? And, you know, maybe I was just lazy this week. But what I did instead <laughs> was, because I'm definitely not an expert on Paris, either on or off screen, and I'm not going to pretend to be, is I just went with literally the first two movies that came to mind. And luckily, they both happened to be streaming and or rentable. So that's how I did it. I just said, when I hear Paris movies, what do I think of? Two movies kind of came to mind first. Partly, well, you'll see why one of them definitely did it. It's possible that another week, uh, one of these two movies might not have. And frankly, the other movie, Frankenheimerly, the other movie, if I uh, can spoil it a little bit, uh, is not one I would have expected, but for some reason it popped in and... Lo and behold, it was available. How did you? How did you pick your movies? Well, there were actually I. There were a bunch that I had in mind that were not available for streaming. Oh, so, do you want to mention those? Uh, like Flight of the Red Balloon, oh, the Ho yeah. Shin film, which I love. Surprising, um, that's not streaming. It's not streaming. Okay. Um, and I don't remember now, but I, I there were like several Rafifi, not streaming. Rafifi is a good one. You know, there were a lot that came to mind mm. that that weren't out there, and then you know there are a lot that, as I mentioned. Are on Hulu Plus because of the Criterion, Criterion movies. Yep. Yeah, and so I kind of wanted to steer away from some of the the giant obvious, you know, right. films like sure. Breathless. So yeah, the people don't need us to say Breathless yeah. is a really good movie. They you, probably yeah, you know, know Breathless at this point. Yeah, that's right. So uh, and I, if you don't, don't you can just just you go see it. it. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so I don't know. I kind of picked. I, I wanted to pick one that was kind of a like a kind of more classic version, and then one that's. Uh, Let's say a new classic. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, why don't you start? What's the first? What are we going to hear? The classic or the new classic? Let's go with the classic. All right. Um, it's currently, it's my streaming pick. Okay. It's Cleo from 5 to 7, which is currently streaming on Hulu Plus. Mm-hmm. And this is the 1962 film from uh, Agnes Vard- Varda, which is uh, kind of a real-time film in that it is about a character named Cleo, played by Korean Mashand, who's a pop star who is waiting to hear back from her doctor as to whether or not she has cancer. And it's, it follows her from 5 to like 6.30 as she just kills time in the city and, you know, spends some time with her maid. She tries to rehearse some songs. She wanders out into the park. She, uh, she, she hangs out with a friend a bit and watches a short film. And it's, it's very much a film about Paris in that she's wandering through it and kind of encountering different people, inclu- including, you know, conversations with a taxi driver, with uh, a soldier back from Algeria she meets. But it it comes across not just as this kind of gorgeous, lively backdrop and a snapshot of Paris in the 60s, but also as this wonderfully indifferent backdrop, because this is a film about this kind of flighty gorgeous maybe somewhat shallow character uh who is forced to confront mortality and she's she keeps running into all of these you know signs of death no matter where she looks in the city and 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 starts to realize that maybe no one is taking her fear seriously or that no one maybe that no one will miss her all that much you know Mm -hmm. she uh 
she wants someone to act like they're as distressed as she is. But when will that, you know, when will that ever happen? No matter how good a friend is, it's, it's your mortality that you have to grapple with. And so it's also a very interesting portrait of this character who maybe has never given a lot of thought to to death or to what her life means. And who over this very, very kind of normal day, other than the news she's waiting for, has to come to grips with it and to grips with her like, you know, very charming, but very kind of, you know, uh, inessential life. Uh, and the fact that the city will keep going on without her if she if she were to die, that all these things would keep going on. She there there's a there's a great scene where she's at a cafe and she puts her song on, and then she walks around the cafe to see how people if people mention it or if they react. And the only reaction she really hears is two people being like, oh, "I can barely talk to you over this noise." <laughs> <laughs> and uh, it, it's a great it's one of many great scenes. It's a really it's a really nicely put together and kind of like very skillfully put together film in a, in a very unshowy way because it's all just conversations and following someone through the city. So uh, it's Cleo from five to seven and it is currently streaming on Hulu plus and it's a really great little film. All right. I have to admit that's uh, on my, my list of movies I've never seen. It's a, uh, it's, it's, it's an it's oversight. A, it's by a good me. one. It actually goes down very easily, mm-hmm. I think. And, and there might be, Something about it in description that sounds more like work than I think it actually is. It's not romantic enough for me. It's not romantic And I also enough. hate the hours of between 5 and 7. My that's, least favorite time of day. That's why you always skip them. I do. You go I straight. Sleep, I sleep through them as a rule. <laughs> so that's, those are the two reasons. But given your recommendation, perhaps I will reconsider. Oh, thank you. Yeah. Right. My, my uh, first pick, I would not say it's a classic. Uh, at least not a classic of... Parisian cinema, as we might traditionally think of it, but it is available on what I'm going to call the streaming trifecta. You can watch this on Amazon Prime, Hulu Plus, or Netflix right now. Whatever your pleasure, whatever (laughs) your fancy, whatever your streaming preference, this movie is currently available on all three. Uh, It is Ronin, directed by John Frankenheimer, and I don't know why, but when I thought of Paris, this is one of the two movies I really thought of, the those great chase scenes. That's it. It's, you see a lot of it you, rush you by. You see a lot of the city, you know, and I was thinking about that in terms of the amount of the city you see as it vrooms by these cars. Uh, you see a lot of it. The, the film, if it's famous at all, and I think it has a good reputation. It's from, I think, 1998. It's certainly not considered a masterpiece, but it, uh, it's, it's well regarded amongst car movie fans as a movie with great car chases. And I did take a look at the big parisian car chase before we recorded this and it is even better than i remembered and you know when you watch it paris is such a great setting for a car chase thing because the streets are so narrow Narrow and busy and busy and and you know there's these wonderful shots there's a lot of shots 
of sort of like from the perspective of the cars and also sort of like right in front of the cars looking back at them. So you can see the cars on either, you know, the streets are like one lane with cars on either side parked. And you can just you just feel the tension just of the cars zooming by on either side. And then they start driving on these tunnels and on these bigger highways. And of course, there's cars coming the other direction. And it's just you know, car chase, there's lots of great American car chase movies. A lot of them, though, take place on roads where it's a little bit wider. There's, you know, there are a lot of them take place on, like, deserts or highways where there's, like, lots of space, you know. It, it, this is like a, a car chase where they're, it's claustrophobic, which is not necessarily two feelings you get together, claustrophobia and the excitement of a car chase. And this movie pulls that off really well. I have to say, though, looking at uh, some of the rest of the movie this this week also, uh, it's a better written movie than I remembered. It has a lot of great dialogue. It definitely harkens back to some of those great French crime thrillers like Rafifi that you mentioned. You know, there's a lot of great French, you know, new wave crime and noir films. And and this one, uh, although it's not in black and white, it's in color, it definitely has that vibe of the, you know, those really bleak and, you know, those tough guy French movies where they only say five words in every 20 minutes but when they say them they're really good and I didn't realize uh, although he's credited as Richard Weiss the script was revised or depending on who you listen to totally rewritten by David Mamet and it has some of that when then when you know that and you're listening to it you know uh, somebody says to like De Niro who's the star of the movie like you worried about saving your own skin and he's like yeah I am it covers my body everybody has a limit I spent some time in interrogation once. They make it hard on you? They don't make it easy. Yeah, it was unpleasant. I held out as long as I could. All the stuff they tried. You just can't hold out forever. Impossible. How'd they finally get to you? They gave me a grasshopper. What's a grasshopper? See, it's uh, two part gin, two part brandy, one part creme de menthe. Uh, oh, Very snappy dialogue. Uh, it, it is not uh, from Cleo to five to seven. It is not, uh, you know, it's not a a great work of cinema. When we get right down to it, it, is a crime movie. It's a car chase movie, but it's a, it's it's better than your standard. And you know, as I was watching it, I was thinking, you know, it's like comparing this to modern Hollywood movies. And I, this movie isn't that old. It's what fifteen years old, right? But it is a movie of refinement. <laughs> you know. It's like a great old wine compared to the four loco of modern Hollywood cinema. We don't want to get too pretentious about it here, Allison. We're all drinking to get drunk. But sometimes we want to get drunk classy. And that's what this movie is. You get drunk classy. That is Ronin. It is available now. Again, the streaming trifecta, Netflix, Amazon, or Hulu. Take your pick. I have to say, I don't remember anything about the plot of that movie other than the car chase. Right, and I didn't either, and I put it on and it immediately starts with this great like just the atmosphere of this little french cafe stormy night the cobblestones de niro and his little hat walking around casing a joint and then it gets into the plot which is you know your standard like a bunch of people brought together for a crime right. but but it's it's just the little details it's precise you know there's i mean you could make a whole thing that the whole thing is about precision like precision driving yeah but that's what it is the little touches the the, the preciseness of it is what makes it good yeah and it's natasha McElhone in the big driving that's in the right big scene, right which I, that's definitely something i remember because when you like ever get to see the, like, the, the woman uh, in the, the car woman. chase uh, yeah in the car chase yeah, yeah. no but I, I do agree paris is a great place for 
a car chase. I think with the firstborn movie, right? Also, yeah, I was trying to remember. I think I, so. It was, yeah, with I, the little cars, with the little car, with the yeah, mini the tiny, yeah, it, not even. It's like a little, just like a little putt putt car, basically, right? And going uh, yeah. down the stairs, yeah, exactly, right, right. But I think the, I mean, that movie kind of travels a little too so that's yeah, yeah. why i didn't want to include it I but i did it, think, I think of it was paris but i yeah either way we might be that, totally wrong, yeah, might be wrong people can correct us yeah but i i do like the idea of the t- like tiny narrow streets as lending something it just instantly ratchets up the tension right all right so my next film i refer to it as a new classic i was pretty much kidding but i i did, I did and enjoy you it. with an umlaut classic yes okay. i did enjoy it very much and it is district b13 <laughs> which is currently available for rent now that is a romance uh-huh, on amazon itunes and sony uh this is a 2004 film directed by pierre morale uh and written and produced by luke basson morale of course one of basson's kind of proteges who's been cranking up films from the basson factory well uh, and yeah. doing he's probably i would say the best one i would uh i'm trying to think of his one better i cannot just, think of one yeah I, he, I i think he definitely bests olivier megaton he oh there's <laughs> he he blows he blows up olivier megaton so to speak <laughs> yes and didn't he also direct a movie called from paris with love maybe you should have picked that one that that one that's now that's a paris movie yes well uh i what i want liked about district b13 is that it's a sci-fi film you know it's set in the dark future of 2013 (laughs) (laughs) it's it's 2013 because it it starts off in 2010 and they explain that this suburb this particular you know the suburbs are like getting more and more violent Mm. and uh, they've decided to wall this one off and then in three years pass and in those three years that inside the walls you know it's become like chaos and crime and parkour and, like, and warlords and parkour ah. taking over yes yeah uh, and uh, you know it's a 2004 film so they were not looking far into the future when they had this dystopic idea <laughs> uh and here we are and it's all come and true. it's all come true yeah <laughs> so, uh, everyone knows parkour everyone, i know how, that's how i got to your house it was basically by rolling down the side <laughs> of the building um Anyway, uh, you know, this is uh, a film that involves parkour and parkour I find as hilarious as it is impressive. It every time a character suddenly is like, "Allow me to, you know, bounce down these like the staircase outside of the building right. without using the stairs." Well, it's so it's, mannered. It's I know, it's funny. It's, it's very funny, yes. but it looks very impressive and there's no Absolutely. other film, you know, in this, the parkour in this film is for real it went it stars one of the co-founders of parkour david bell as uh leto the character who is uh you know like the chief of maybe the only good building mm. inside district b13 mm. uh but i i do enjoy this it's there's a kind of uh 70s style sci-fi here to the kind of big but silly idea you know it's got this kind of escape from new york style idea to it that right you're like walling off the troubled suburbs which is you know are a source of like like a genuine like social conflict in in france and in paris where the the suburbs seem sounds misleading here usually suburbs are wealthy and they're there tend to be poor communities and public housing and it's also where uh, you know a lot of the immigrant communities live so it kind of brushes over all kinds of actual real issues on its way towards extended parkour sequences uh, in which people fight giant thugs named the yeti um also uh corrupt government neutron bomb uh, sister who's been chained up and made addicted to heroin, all kinds of definitely awesome, a new classic stuff. and you yes. umlaut classic. Yeah. 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 Y
La flamme est gueule, alors ça t'inspire Qu'est-ce qu'on fait maintenant Je te perds si on arrête l'histoire Tu me perds s'il y a une bande de chiens enragés qui va se retrouver sans maître. Et ça, je pense pas que ça soit mieux. Mais qu'est-ce que tu veux Tu vois, c'est ça la différence entre nous deux. Toi, tu sais jamais ce qu'il y a dans ma tête. Alors que moi, je connais toute la merde qu'il y a dans la tienne. Je sais comment tu penses et ça me laisse toujours un coup d'avance. Uh, and, you know, it's just, it's a good time. It really is. Like, it's ridiculous and a lot of fun. Okay. So that is District B13. It is available for rent on Amazon, iTunes, and Sony. And it's definitely an act, you know, really accurate, authentic portrait of, of Paris. I think so. Yeah. But for last time I was there. Yeah. Was there, now, I what about, well, it's, it's 2013 now. What about uh, District <laughs> 13 Ultimatum? I have to say, I have not seen it. Oh. I know. Oh. Have my. you seen it? Have I seen it? Have you seen it multiple times? Maybe. <laughs> and would you say... Out- Amazing. Yeah, does it outdo? I, I'm vaguely remembering a scene where they like drive a car into... like It's almost like car core. <laughs> like a car goes inside a building. <laughs> vaguely. I vaguely remember this. Uh, honestly, it kind of all blends together with the first one, to right. be in my mind. But if you enjoy the first one, I think you'll enjoy the second one, too. Excellent. All right. Okay. So what's your final pick? Mine, uh, certainly not as classy a film as District 13. Um, but one that I really like. And again, this is the one where it's possible on another week I might not have thought of this first, but given its director, it was uh, it, it leapt to mind, given our listeners' choice review, and that's Holy Motors, which is the most recent film from Leos Carax, which, am I pronouncing it right? You, we were discussing this before we went on the air. Le, what, what, you looked it up. What is the correct That, was, that was it. it. Leos Carax. It, yeah. It's a made-up name, people. We can, we can pronounce we can it however we want. However we want, yes. Uh, so, Holy Motors, it, you can rent it on Amazon, iTunes, Google Play, Vudu, and YouTube, or if you have a Netflix account, it is also available for streaming on uh, Netflix. Uh, bonus streaming pick this week as well. Uh, the film is about uh, a man played by Denny Levant, who is the star of The Lovers on the Bridge as well. Uh, he spends his days playing all these different roles. One minute he might be a old homeless beggar woman, homeless, much like uh, the star of... Lovers on the Bridge, and the next minute he might be a motion capture performer in a high-tech movie studio, and we, we don't really understand exactly why he's doing this. He seems kind of like an actor, but there's no cameras around. Um, it's not quite clear what's going on. You kind of just have to buy the ticket and take the ride here. Uh, this was also on my mind this week, Allison, because there was an article on the uh, film website moviemezzanine.com, which I wrote a response to. The original article was about the connection between rewatchability and excellence and the particular author of this piece was taking the stance that a, a movie for a movie to be truly great it needs to be rewatchable um it, he applied what uh, he called the TNT test can a movie be played on TNT over and over and you will watch it you uh, being one of the foremost I, experts on the I movies love, of TNT yes i thought and you, TBS you, and, and TBS and all of the other channels that run movies yeah, yeah. throughout Saturdays. That's right. I thought you would might be able to weigh in on this, but what well, part of it was he sort of uh, cited Holy Motors as a movie you can't rewatch over and over, which I just completely disagreed with. I mean, I disagreed with his his main point as right. well, and we don't want to get too sidetracked, but it was just I mean, it just shows you how subjective this all is anyway. But I find Holy Motors, which was my favorite movie of last year, just so rewatchable and I just you know, not even in whole or in part, right. because it's it, so it, episodic. It can, exists in parts really well. Yeah, you can kind of uh, just put, you can just turn on any different section, because it really is all these dis- disconnected little vignettes of Denny Levant's character putting on all these roles. And the one that I rewatched for the podcast, because it was the one I thought of, because of the lovers on the bridge, is the scene with Kylie Minogue, right. where they're walking through the abandoned apartment store, 
and she's singing that beautiful song. And at the end of it, they go up onto the roof and they're overlooking the city and overlooking the bridge from the lovers uh, on the bridge. And I think you're very, you're supposed to think of it for sure because. Carrick's is not only making a movie about all of film, but he's also making a movie about his films. There's a lot of returning to his ideas and characters and themes and what have you. So uh, it's hard not to think of The Lovers on the Bridge when you're watching that scene. Who were we? Who were we? When we were who we were Back then Who were we Have become If we'd done Differently And I did love this movie last year. I still love it. I think it's really beautiful. It's hard to describe without making it sound pretentious. You kind of just have to take my word for it that it's... It's also, I mean, the thing is, it's also beautiful at parts and incredibly silly at parts. Silly. Yeah. Serious. Funny. Funny. Yeah. Disturbing. Yeah. It's it's really... It's it's all movies in a lot of ways. And it's by design. And, it, and it's a movie about movies because he's maybe playing this actor, putting on these roles. But as I was thinking about it in this context, it's also, you could say, a movie about Paris. It's a movie about the city. And you really get a sense in a city symphony type way of all these different parts of the city. The underworld, the fashionistas, uh, just average people going about their lives, people who are dying. You know, it's just you really get a, a flavor of the, the scope of the city, the scope of life in the city in a way you don't get in a lot of other movies that are a little more focused. And again, that's something that in this case, I think, is to its credit. So, uh, Holy Motors, available again on Amazon, iTunes, Google Play, Vudu, YouTube, or for streaming on Netflix. If you haven't seen it yet, go for it. Just be prepared for a little weirdness. Don't expect it to all make sense. Let it. Let you you decide how it makes sense. It's that's the sort of movie where the meaning is not thrust upon you. You can thrust your own meaning upon it. Get that more. Now it's time for our listener's choice section in which we offer up three choices for you to pick from for our main review. Your options this round were all films that weren't new to streaming, but that we'd saved and been meaning to watch for a while. Ben Wheatley's first film, Down Terrace, Leos Carax's The Lovers on the Bridge, and Andrei Tarkovsky's final film, The Sacrifice. And the winner by very few votes was The Lovers on the Bridge, though uh, The Sacrifice, which came in third, did get like a solid 25 or so percent of the vote. This is one of our closer ones. This This was was a a close one. This was a tight race. So, The Lovers on the Bridge is currently streaming on Netflix, though I should point out that the version on the site is not the ideal one. It's a Mm-mm. pan and scan version. Mm-hmm. So Not HD. Not HD. We uh, often like credit Netflix, oh, this movie looks so good on streaming. Not this time. Yeah, this is not. So if you, you may want to look to other places to see this film. And also, if you're a Netflix subscriber, might be worth sending them a note about this. They seem to just go with the version that's given to them by the rights holder. But the more it's made clear that you know, things like this are important to their customers, the more likely they'll pay attention to things like aspect ratio. Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, old boy, the version that was originally on Netflix was dubbed. Right. And enough people wrote about it and complained about it that it's they now. They changed it. Yeah, it's switched oh, out. All right. So, well, start fetching, listeners. Yes, they do listen. Yeah. 
So The Lovers on the Bridge is the third feature film from Leos Carex, uh, and it would have fit well with our topic from the last episode, which was films that sat on the shelf. Oh, that's true. This is a film that was released in France in 1991, but didn't hit U.S. theaters until 1999, thanks to Miramax, who picked it up and then sat on it. Miramax, who are often the source of, of these stories, or later the Weinstein Company. I was going to say, let's, uh, yes, now you the know, Weinstein yes. Company. Yes. Um, the film had a troubled production that led to its being infamously expensive i think it was the most expensive french film ever at the time which is very funny when you look it's not like a special effects you know extravaganza of aliens and things like that it's it's a love story but um it's due in part to it's a it's, romance it's a romance a parisian romance due in part to its requiring a full model of the pont neuf which is the bridge on which it's set as no one would agree to shut down the actual bridge highly trafficked bridge in the center of the city for three months so the film stars Juliette Binoche and Denis Levant, who starred in all but one of Carex's films, as Michelle and Alex, who are two vagrants living on the Pont Neuf, the oldest bridge in Paris, which has been shut down for repairs. Michelle is a painter whose eyesight is failing and who's had her heart broken, while Alex is a street performer who's addicted to drugs and alcohol. And the two have an ecstatic, if troubled, romance set against the backdrop of the country's 1989 bicentennial celebrations, including a famous scene in which Alex steals a police boat so that Michelle can water ski past the fireworks uh. on the Seine. But Michelle is slowly going blind, and Alex is fiercely possessive, such that he does things to keep Michelle by his side that essentially involve hurting her in indirect ways, or sometimes direct. Um, so, Matt, this is a romance about two homeless people, mm -hmm. and while I don't think it's a central question to the film, it's one I'd like to delve into first, since it's both an ecstatic fairy tale and gritty. What did you think of its portrayal of homelessness by way of Alex, Michelle, and their friend Hans? Mm, that's a good uh, question, actually, because it was something I did think about when I was watching it, which is that so many films... I, I almost... I, I'm, giving, I'm giving away the game here, because I thought about maybe writing this as a piece... Uh, so nobody steal this if I share this idea. Homeless people are almost, in movies, almost a category unto themselves, like, you know, like a Manic Pixie Dream Girls. Yes, like a lot of times, they're homeless, magical. Ma homeless people are sort of there to suffer and martyr themselves for the betterment of non-homeless people, um, and they somehow improve their lives. I think we can all think of uh, movies like that. The one that immediately came to mind for me was Home Alone 2, Lost in New York. <laughs> Where, like, the, the woman in New York, like, helps Macaulay Culkin, the turtle doves, that whole thing. And, like, doesn't exist as a person, but just as a, like, magical figure to help Macaulay Culkin on his journey. You know, that's what really matters. is not this person who's homeless and destitute. It's the kid who's living in the plaza but missing his family. Like, that's what it's all about. So, I thought that in a lot of movies that happens and that perhaps that is something to explore and maybe hasn't been explored fully enough. Uh, and in this movie, I don't know, at first I was like, oh, wow, this is really gritty and a side of homelessness we don't often see in movies. But then at other times it does get a little magical as well. And that scene that you pointed to with the fireworks, the, the bicentennial, uh, it is it does at times become almost this beautiful vision of homelessness and vagrancy and and outsiderdom and, and, and has a sort of romantic view of it. And on the other hand, sometimes it has a really bleak view of it. So I don't know. It's funny because I, what I admired initially was that it was sort of, in my mind, a rebuke to that stereotype of the magical homeless person. And yet sometimes the scenes I liked best were the ones that were a little more surreal and a little more outrageous. And that sometimes the, as, as it went on, the, I found the, the, the grittiness 
uh, doesn't didn't really jive all that well with the surreal nature of it. What do, what did you think? Yeah, I I it was one of those things. I haven't seen this film for a long time, and I didn't remember much about it. So going back into it, it, it was I was concerned about the idea of homelessness being made cute. Right. Right. But I don't think it is. I do think, you know, no. when it is like the the kind of and it is you know not in a love story way but like it is an incredibly romantic film in mm-hmm. this kind of sweeping idea of the city as the empty city particularly as a playground right the city at night when everyone's sleeping mm-hmm. uh it has this amazingly beautiful vision of it and i i, I think that it, that part is really interesting it's almost like the characters have kind of like homelessness is for these three characters and it gives up on kind of a larger view very quickly. You know, it's only in the beginning that we see the characters getting picked up in the kind of by the cops in their nightly sweep where they bring everyone to a shelter. And that's pretty, that's pretty grim. Um, It's almost more like that for this trio on the bridge, like you, you're kind of almost backstage in life. You know, you're not Mm. in the same level of existence that everyone else is anymore. And I think you have these scenes where, where Alex is like brushing his teeth while everyone's going by on the sidewalk or when he takes a fish, he steals a fish where it's almost like they are invisible, you know, for a bit. Right. Um, Especially him who's so clearly homeless looking. Michelle can kind of go back and forth between being, you know, one of them. And then she puts on sunglasses and goes to the cafe to kind of, and she blends in. Mm -hmm. Right. But I, I, I think, positioning it that way was very interesting and worked with the idea that like the city at night becomes this glorious, you know, free place. Yeah. Um, but I, I, yeah, it didn't bother me. Like I didn't have that sense of it, of, of overplaying that hand mm-hmm. of kind of over rom- overly romanticizing because the life that they have is very difficult and it is killing her basically. Right. You know, like right. it's not good for her. No. At all. And that was one of the things that I thought was very interesting about the movie was the depiction of this quote unquote romance, you know, the title, which is an, you know, it's not an exact title of the, of the original French title. The Lovers on the Bridge suggests some sort of beautiful romance. And actually, this movie is pretty disturbing, frankly. Um, the, the, the lengths that Denny Levant's character will go to, to to stay with the Juliette Binoche character like you said, I mean, he's willing to hurt her, literally or metaphorically. I mean, there are some of the best scenes, actually, are the ones where he goes to these disturbing lengths to ensure that she won't leave him. Yeah. Uh, and uh, some of my, but all, really, all of my favorite scenes in the movie were those, other than that one really incredible bicentennial sequence, which sort of exists almost outside the reality, the reality yeah. of the movie, which, and it's just so extravagant and beautiful. Yeah, that you just can't help but be swept away by the pure ecstatic joy of it. Yeah, but you know, all of all of the mentions of romance in the film are it's this incredible burden, like almost this painful thing, right? right. The romance that uh, Benoche's character had that kind of set her partially on this path, along with her eyesight going, is with this cellist named Julian. And it like destroyed her, right? Like right. She, it, it kind of drove her from home. Mm-hmm. And uh, she has this dream in which she goes and tries to kill him, right? And and then when Hans recounts what happened to his marriage, it's another story in which he kind of like couldn't help but follow the woman he loved, you know, down this path of destruction, right? And there's like there's no choice. Of course, I did it. Yeah, you it's know? like this. It's like the madness and or selfishness and or destructiveness of love. Yeah, that it's this 
it's this fever, right? Mm-hmm. Almost that you're in the grip of it and that it's not necessarily a happy thing. It right. can be delirious. There's moments of ecstasy right. followed by incredible pain and agony sometimes. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I, I, I did think it, it made it a much more interesting story, I think, than a typical romance. Mm. That kind of the disturbing undertones and the sense that you're not really sure that you want a happily ever them to run off into the sunset together because it doesn't seem like a very healthy relationship. I, I was pretty sure I did not want them to run off and have a happy ending in the sunset. You weren't sure you thought maybe that would be a good see to well, me. Like, I feel like they both, I mean, he they're has so very, screwed up. They well, deserve has, each other. No, but I mean, he has very obvious signs of kind of like, of his very obvious signs of problems. Yes. But I feel like she also does, right? Okay. She has kind of quieter imbalances that yes. lead her to do things that are also unwise. True. So I don't She's know. She's less that, overtly less o- destructive. Right. And uh, possessive. But is also so in the grips of kind of these emotions that she basically also set her life aflame. Yeah. Right. True. True. And, and, Although, I mean, I, I have to say, like, the one of the things that I was uh, maybe, I don't know, disliked, uncomfortable with, whatever, was the end of this movie. I didn't quite know how to feel about it. Actually, I was. I think it was. It was, felt pretty bittersweet to me. I definitely was not. That's yeah. Yeah. Without spoiling it, that is uh, that's a very generous way of putting it. Actually, I don't yeah. Know, I was kind so, of, did you like this movie? I did like it overall. I definitely don't like it as much as Holy Motors, and I feel like in some ways the movie kind of highlights what I love about Holy Motors and what I love about his filmmaking, which is those like ecstatic moments. Like he, I, to me, he's much more like. I don't know. He works best in that surreal mode where he can have these flights of fancy. And the, the moments in Lovers on the Bridge that work best are those really surreal or very visual or the moments that kind of stand apart from the narrative. And I don't feel like the story here is really the strength of it. I almost feel like, you know, it's it would be best as like a segment or taking the different segments out and watching them separately. I feel like that's his strength. And that's why I love Holy Motors. And in this case, some of those ecstatic moments, like I said, they don't always seem to fit comfortably with some of the darker sections of the movie. Yeah, but I, I mean, the whole movie is about this really delirious moment that's like, uh, like by nature, temporary in their lives, right? Mm. Like, around, it's based around the bridge as a place to live, which it's going to be fixed someday, right? And people are going to be walking across it. Right. And you can't live on it anymore. Sure. Right? There's like a... Even the bubble that they live on, mm-hmm. lately they live in, is temporary. Even like the summer in which it's possible to live outside, right, right, right is really right. temporary. And yeah. I feel like that, that kind of that lends itself to the ecstatic nature of the relationship, particularly in the, in the case of, of Benoche's character, where she's kind of like, she's kind of waiting it out, right? She's mm-hmm. like kind of ready to die mm-hmm. in some ways, and that like allows her to have this kind of crazy freedom that comes through in those scenes of like when they go to the beach or when they go anywhere else it's really when she starts making plans for the future that he freaks out Mm. yeah i don't know i I kind of i thought that the ending as much as it is very uneasy it is that idea that they are going to maybe try to have without that see what happens right without the kind of like incredible bubble and i don't know that it was kind of horrifying i know to me yeah but i i if you can ho- if sh- if you can hope that one of them right can put together a normal life, <laughs> yeah, then like you have to you have to allow that the other might as well, and who knows where it could go? Maybe, maybe. Yeah, I'm not saying I don't I don't think that it'll work out well, frankly. No, but, uh, but I think you know, 
I, I just love the movie. I mean, I did overall. I did like the movie, and I, it has some. I mean, to me, like any movie that has some sequences that are as good as some of the sequences in this movie, like the bicentennial, like the sequence where he goes into the subway and he sees these um, posters, like you know, like missing posters for her, and uh, destroys them to, to try to keep her again because he's so possessive and people are looking for her. There are these like you know missing posters. And it's not just that; it's that he goes, he tries to peel the, that, he peels the the poster off. So, you know, like on a literal level, it's like an amazing scene. But then, like the idea of trying to destroy her image, trying to tear her down, and then the fact that, like, as he's doing it, one eye, like if you watch, one eye is like the only thing that's left. Like he pulls her face off, but one eye. They must have done it like with pastes, particularly. Like one eye stays up, and it relates to her vision being failing her and it's the one eye that's already blind it's like it's that that scene like blew my mind well, and, and then, then he's burning, burning them, them. Yeah. i mean like that i, I feel like which those, connects that to image, his yeah fire, fire breathing, breathing and his destructiveness yeah. i mean it, it's I just mean, there are so many scenes like that like yeah. the yeah the fire breathing is an amazing scene the scene where they go to the museum is an amazing scene even the yeah. scene where they watch they kind of there's a low window at a nightclub and they watch everyone's feet you yeah. know another great like, there scene are all, there are some incredible incredible scenes in this yeah. and I think I yeah I, I liked it a lot more than I you know I, I like I said I saw this years ago right. and I don't remember feeling strongly about it and I liked it much much more mm. in rewatching it the one other thing I would mention before we wrap it up is you know, I didn't go into this with a ton of uh, context. I certainly knew who the director was. I knew who the star was, stars were. But I didn't know about that it was, you know, such a hugely troubled production. I knew it, had, it was delayed, but I didn't really know uh, the extent of it. And I didn't know about that they had to recreate the bridge in the middle of a lake somewhere and that they built the, all the buildings around. It's like, it's like one article I read, I think, compared it to almost like the apocalypse now of French cinema. Which the is Heaven's Gate. The Heaven's Gate yeah. of French cinema. Yeah. Like, And it's just funny because it's, it's weird how time kind of can, depending on the movie, it can kind of uh, erase a movie's reputation. Like, I think a lot of people who probably saw this movie when it first came out came to it with a lot of baggage. You know, that this is a huge movie, that it must be important, that it has to be big, that it's because it's, you know, it costs so much money. And they willingly or unwillingly kind of uh put that baggage on it and i didn't know any of that until after i saw it and it's funny because i would have had i mean certainly i could feel that there was a certain amount of messiness to it and i would have felt definitely that there's the ambition and that it's trying to reach for some grandeur on a metaphorical or a thematic level but i definitely wouldn't have guessed that this was the most expensive movie of all time at the time it was made or whatever like i just that would have never occurred to me or that it took three years to make and it sat on the shelf for time. So it's just interesting to come to a movie later after that has faded and then to realize that, oh, you know, that this movie has this huge reputation and this infamy that I have no idea about. I thought that was fascinating. Yeah. And I mean, remember also that people in the U.S. when they finally saw it were also getting it much later than it was probably the initial like the French audiences right. who were dealing with the major story and it coming off of. You know, and cracks coming off of two movies, one very small and one right. slightly bigger. But yeah, this is it was it was uh, it's a lot of baggage to deal with yeah. as a filmmaker. But even again, if you saw it in like 99 or whatever, the fact that it had sat on the shelf for seven I years, I think that's it. Then yeah. it became like a cult film right? right? at that point. Oh, this film like this from this, you know, great promising filmmaker. Right. Have you heard? Yeah. Well, so that is The Lovers on the Bridge. It is currently streaming on Netflix. 
though, you know, as we said, buyer beware. Okay, it's time for Behind the Eight Ball, the section in which we run through three films that are new to streaming, two that are listener recommendations, and one from our Netflix My List. Are you waiting for me to say something? I can't imagine what. My List. Thank you. Matt, you're going to go first. Are you ready? You're like smiling so much from having gotten to do that. You got it together? Know, you got it? Funny. You got it? I'm ready. All right. Yes. Three new films. I, yeah, I, I need to be serious because actually my first pick is not a funny movie at all, but it is a good one. It is uh, now available on Netflix. It's the Central Park Five documentary directed by Ken Burns, Sarah Burns, and David McMahon. And it is based or it's about the notorious case of the Central Park jogger from 1989 who was attacked by, uh, well, at the time they thought it was this group of teenagers, but it turned out that they were falsely accused, falsely convicted. And the film is about the case, the trial, and also about uh, what happened after the fact and how this case represented the sort of the broken soul of the city at the time and uh, the broken justice system to a certain uh, extent. An interesting documentary, to say the least. Definitely worth checking out. It's the Central Park Five. It's available now on Netflix. Next up, a little bit lighter film. Uh, this is going to be available on VOD starting on October 8th. It's a film I saw and really liked at South by Southwest this year called Zero Charisma, directed by Katie Graham and Andrew Matthews. It is about a grumpy, surly Dungeons & Dragons enthusiast named Scott Wiedemeyer, played in a very good performance by a guy named Sam Eidson. He finds his Dungeons and Dragons under assault, Allison, from the worst thing imaginable, a cool hipster geek. <gasps> uh, this is a very affectionate portrait of really hardcore geekdom, hardcore nerdery. Uh, but it's not a fawning one either. It's pretty clear-eyed. I mean, this guy, Scott Wiedemeyer, although we do come to really like him a lot, he's not a great guy. He's, he is kind of mean, snotty, obnoxious, super nerdy. Um, but, you know, it, it kind of investigates uh, this idea of not quite fake geek girls. I'm sure you've heard that term, Allison. Oh, yeah. Because the fake geek in question here, if you want to call him that, is a guy. But it does kind of investigate these ideas of nerdiness and geekiness. And can you be a nerd and be kind of cool? Can you be a nerd and dress well and have a good job and a cool girlfriend? And if those people are geeks, what does that mean for the guys who still kind of fit into the old stereotype? That's Zero Charisma. It's available on VOD starting on October 8th. And and finally, a movie I don't love, but I have to admit, I'm going to say something I never thought I would say. I'm, I'm actually thinking about rewatching it. From 2006, The Fountain. It's available now on Amazon Prime. I love it. I know. You love this movie. <laughs> I did not love it when it came out. But it's interesting because I remember when it came out, we were the, the early days of our podcasting careers yes. back then. I think we might have reviewed it on the old IFC show. It's possible. We certainly talked about it a lot. And we it did, was a yes. very divisive movie. It's this super, you know, hoity-toity, pretentious, artsy-fartsy, Darren Aronofsky but reaching... big-hearted. Big-hearted, like, very like, huge sincere, hearted, yeah. huge-hearted. You know, he is reaching for the stars. He is going full out. I believe kamikaze autourism was the term yes. used to describe it at the time by uh, Jay Hoberman. You know, Hugh Jackman playing three different roles. Tomas, the conquistador, looking for the, you know, like the old tree of life. Tom, the neurosurgeon, trying to cure his wife of, like, inoperable cancer. And then, what is it, Tommy, the space 
Buddhist dude <laughs> who's bald, who's in a bubble in space, going to like this literal tree in the I don't know. I always thought it was a bit full of itself and a bit maybe uh a little high on its ideals, but I have to admit I, I as its as its reputation has grown and it really has it become this cult movie um, and kind of the symbol of everything that's sort of wrong with Hollywood now. Like this movie would never be made now, just seven years later. It was no one was happy they made it then. That's true. <laughs> it was a kind of like, how did this know. get made? Yeah, then? I mean, like I don't, I don't think it's good to hold up as like, here is what the studio system yes, used it, to do, right? Because they would look at it as right, a mistake, <laughs> right? Exactly. It wasn't so much made as it escaped, sort of. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, I don't know. There is something about it that I am interested in in going back and revisiting, and I can now because it's available for streaming on amazon oh, i'm very curious to hear what you think of that yeah we'll see if i actually go back and look at it again yeah it is romantic and i'm all about romance it so. is and it, it's got it's about death too absolutely so it's a good pairing mm. all right two listener recommendations all right i'm going to start with this one from christopher who says i would like to recommend Whit stillman's the last days of disco i wish i could write something that is as clever and witty as the movie is but I cannot. So instead, I'll just say it's a wonderful film, and if you are a fan of well-written dialogue performed by perfectly cast actors, then you will like The Last Days of Disco. That is available now on Netflix, and I've also got a recommendation here from Martin, who says, I would like to recommend to you the 2013 zombie movie The Battery. It was made for only $6,000, but these guys made an amazing movie. Rather than being your average zombie flick, it's far more of a character piece about two guys backpacking through rural Connecticut. You see the relationship between the two of them and how it develops, and how one character can't let go of civilization that no longer exists, while the other is excited about it, enjoying a survivalist lifestyle. The backwoods and fields of Connecticut look stunning. It's a magnificently shot film, and I think you guys should talk about it on your podcast. It's available to rent. Through just about every pay service you can think of, plus you can buy a digital copy of the movie outright, DRM-free, from their website, thebatterymovie.com. I can assure you I am not one of the makers of the film. I am just a film enthusiast who is totally in love with this movie and would love to hear your takes on it. We haven't seen it yet, but it sounds intriguing, and uh, there you go. Martin recommends The Battery. All right, and one from your My List. My List. You gave me number 37. Which, uh, this episode is Jailbreakers. I think you're going to like this one, Allison. It's a Mm. 1994 TV movie directed by (laughs) William Friedkin. Ooh. And starring Shannon Doherty. (laughs) Wait. And Antonio Sabato Jr. (gasps) Yes. This originally aired as part of this fascinating Showtime series called Rebel Highway which was actually remakes or very loose remakes where they would just take the title and make a new movie of old 50s B-movies um, by some really interesting directors. Um, our friend and colleague uh, R. Emmett Sweeney discovered this series. Don't ask me how. But he found it, and he found that a lot of the episodes were available on Netflix, including Jailbreakers. So I added all of them. I haven't watched any of them because I'm a horrible person. But this one and a bunch of the others are sitting on my my list so this one is Jailbreakers, but if you're interested in the series, if that idea of like cool filmmakers remaking old 50s B-movies sounds interesting, now the series was called Rebel Highway, and you can find like all information about it if you just like Wikipedia it or IMDb it. And then if you look for individual episodes, they all have different names, but if you look for the individual episodes on Netflix, you'll find a bunch of them. So there you go, Jailbreakers and Rebel Highway, 
available on Netflix. Are you ready, Allison, for your countdown? I am ready. All right, let's start with three new releases. Okay, my first new release is a film that I haven't seen yet and was really surprised to see turn up on Netflix, and that is Salinger, which is Shane Salerno's documentary about J.D. Salinger, the famous and reclusive author. This film only got a theatrical release on September 6th, so it's very surprising to see it already on Netflix, though I think that was part of a deal that the Weinstein Company made, so... There you go. You didn't have to buy a ticket for it after all, I guess, is the lesson to be learned. <laughs> Question mark? I've seen it. Yes. I'm going to just the first time I've ever done this, I think, on 40 something episodes of the show. Yes. I'm going to say, do not listen to Allison. Flat out. Don't do it. I don't care if it's free. I don't care if it's streaming on Netflix. This is a horrible movie. Unless <laughs> The only reason you should watch it is yes. if you want to see how not to make a documentary. Yes. It is in some ways... The ultimate example of the Allison Wilmore test of documentaries uh, in yes. that it is a fascinating story. J.D. Salinger. It is a terrible movie. It is almost like how not to make a movie about an interesting study. It's horrible. Wow. Interesting. Well, I, so Salerno, who may be best known for writing, writing Armageddon, Armageddon at age 24, yes. uh, worked on it for five years. and Spent his own money. Yes. Yes. He put his own like two million bucks into the film. I have nothing against the guy. Right, but I, admirable I, to, to be passionate about a project to make his own movie. But I have to tell you, I, I saw this movie good. and it is horrible. Yeah. Well, I, I think what's, interesting about it to me is that the Weinstein Company attempted to make happen this like keep the secrets marketing campaign that suggested there was some incredible twists hiding in the movie that that critics would be like sworn to secrecy on if they saw it and yet most of the details have emerged well almost immediately the times in an article kind of spoiled it not in a review they just kind of revealed this news yeah this news this revelation at the end of the movie and And, uh, frankly the reason I think I suspect is because there's really very little else about the movie that's appealing. That's right. a reason to see it. And I, I mean, I feel like if you're going to go with that kind of approach, it, the reveal needs to be that like J.D. Salinger is, has been, you know, I don't know, 18 people all along. There was never a J.D. Salinger. No, or, it's nothing you know, that shocking. J.D. Salinger is an alien. J.D. No. Salinger, you know, is alive and is actually just Sa- Shane Saler- Salerno. You right. Know, now that looks, would be interesting. No, yes. it's a lot of the like revelations are like, here is never before seen footage of J.D. Salinger in World War II. And yes. it's like, literally, it's 45 seconds <laughs> of the back of J.D. Salinger <laughs> as he accepts a bunch of flowers from a bunch of, like, European awesome. peasants. Yes. I, you know, the cult of J.D. Salinger has never been something I've really understood. I mean, like, you know, uh, Catcher in the Rye is something I read in high school sure, and we enjoyed, all did. like all of us. Absolutely. But uh, I, I think there, the kind of response to this has been great to track in terms of how people feel about the divulging of his secrets. And some people are like, this is great and fascinating and some people are like this is outrageous and you can't do that to this guy who's dead to me it's it's neither like yes. it's a little unsettling it's a little queasy at times yes. but like I th- that doesn't bother me if the if the things he was discovering were really really interesting allison this is a movie where there's a title card on screen to explain what the catcher in the rye is about <laughs> if you don't know what the catcher in the rye is about why are you watching this movie I don't know. No. Uh, yes. Anyway, so with Matt's warning in place, yes, Salinger is now available. Watch at your streaming own peril, people on Netflix. Uh, and then my other two recommendations. The next one is also a documentary. It is called "Me at the Zoo" and it is streaming on Hulu. And this is a 2012 doc that attempts to chronicle a phenomenon that didn't exist a decade ago, which would be internet celebrity. 
uh, directed by Chris Mukerbal and Valerie Veach. It focuses on Chris Crocker, who uh, became infamous for... Oh, is he the Leave Britney Alone Leave guy? Leave Britney Alone, wow. yes. And it looks into, that. you know, he was uh, a kid living in Tennessee, in a small town in Tennessee. And it kind of follows how you can become famous online for something, you know, as seemingly as throwaway as this video. And also kind of what the upsides and downsides of it are, you know, uh, and kind of how someone can, like how useful maybe this fame can be to someone who's seeking celebrity. So uh, it's an interesting documentary. It's uh, Me at the Zoo on Hulu. Right, that one sounds interesting. Yes. You've redeemed yourself Thank in my you. eyes. And finally, uh, one more pick from Hulu. It is called uh, a film called Intacto. This is a 20, uh, sorry, and one last pick. It's also on Hulu. It's a film called Intacto, uh, 2001. The feature debut from director Juan Carlos Fresnadillo, who uh, did 28 Weeks Later, the surprisingly good sequel to 28 Days Later. And this film is uh, it's about an underground ring, basically based on luck, on the idea that that certain people are just lu- like luck is this quantity you can have, like a like a talent. And that some people can take your luck by touching you. And uh, there are different games played to test who is the luckiest. And these involve everything from Russian roulette to uh, this great sequence in which all of the contestants are blindfolded and they have to run through the forest. You know, and so... If you're lucky, you're not going to run smack into a tree. Right. Oh, that's yes. cool. And so it's it's a film that maybe has uh, more to it in terms of concept than it has in story. It doesn't quite, it doesn't really stick the landing, but it's, it's a, a little really... escape from tomorrow-ish in that yeah, way, perhaps? It's really, really interesting yeah. in concept. And it does have a great performance from uh, Max von Sydow in it as this, as like the luckiest man um, who, you know... And Playing I think, himself, I think, is what you mean. Right. You know, but like the, the very ideas of like what proves someone lucky like someone who was like the lone survivor of a yes. plane crash or all of that. So it's a really interesting film. And uh, Fresnadio, you know, is a, is a definitely a talented filmmaker. 28 weeks later, I think is kind of has a test to that. So this is the film that got him the Hollywood attention. It's called Intacto on Hulu. Okay. How about uh, two listener recommendations? Okay. I have two listener recommendations, both from guys named John. Different guys named John? Different guys named John. The first, We're huge with Johns. Yes. The first is from John from weird. Ohio. Okay. Sorry. Go ahead. Um, he recommends Daisies. He writes, this last week, sort of on a whim, I watched the Czech film Daisies on Hulu+. Plus. It's a bit hard to summarize the plot. Two girls want to be spoiled and do whatever they want. So they do. There are some great odd camera techniques used throughout this movie, and it might be weird, but I had a lot of fun with it. So that is Daisies. On He's Hulu pushing Plus. Daisies, this guy. He is. Yeah. Uh, make another joke about Johns. <laughs> um, okay. And the other John says, A movie I found completely by accident and absolutely adored, it was number two on my top ten list of 2012, was Unicorn City, a low-budget indie about a loser who dreams of getting a job at Warlocks, on the, Warlocks of the Beach and ends up creating a gamer utopia in the woods. It's a sweet and funny love story that just about any geek could appreciate. And it is currently streaming on Netflix, Amazon, Hulu, HitBliss, and Redbox. So there's another... There's another indie for geek yeah. uh, culture indie there for you. you. Go. 
make a nice little double feature. Okay, and one random film from your my list. You gave me number 11, which is Broken English. That's the 2007 Zoe Cassavetes film starring Parker Posey mm. as a New York woman who uh, has trouble finding love. And then she meets a dreamy Frenchman played by Melville Poupeau and, and then chases him, I think, to Paris. <laughs> But I haven't. Have you, you haven't seen. This I haven't one? seen it. Yeah. Okay. So, so it's that's it's hence it's place on my my list. Okay. Um, but yeah, if it's one I've heard good things about, and someday perhaps I will see it. All right. Well, it's time to get to our listeners' choice options for our next episode, and it's that's going to be coming out like the week before Halloween. So it seems only fitting to do a uh, a Halloween themed episode. So we've got three, uh, three options here for you for instant screaming. <laughs> Hold on. I'm just letting everyone recover from the incredible terror that I instilled in them. They're probably all in the fetal position on the ground. And then probably recovering now, maybe wiping the sweat. Okay. I think we're good. Allison, yes. uh, I think you have our first option for instant screaming. What is it? First up is Carrie, which is currently streaming on Netflix, as are the other two films that we're going to offer mm-hmm. you, all on Netflix this mm-hmm. time. It is a 1976 film from Brian De Palma, based on the Stephen King novel, about a young girl who comes into her own and goes to the prom with her dream boy. Ah! <laughs> yes. Also, Pig's Blood, etc. Soon to be remade with Chloe Moretz and Julianne Moore. Ah! <laughs> <laughs> yeah yes. that's now that's scary that is scary yes, yes. but now we are looking at the, this is the original, the original right. starring sissy spacek in really fantastic performance that's right and uh it'll be good to take another look at this especially with the remake coming out yeah what better way to prepare for a dicey looking new remake than yes. by revisiting the original the, classic exactly nothing like blowing the new movie out of the water before it <laughs> before. even has a chance exactly yeah okay that's option one Option number two is uh, the original version of a horror movie that was recently remade. Actually, the remake isn't terrible. Uh, it's a fun movie. Uh, it's from 1978. It's directed by a, a man I enjoy named Joe Dante. And the film is Piranha, uh, the low-budget Jaws knockoff. I'm not sure how scary this one actually is. I think I've seen it once or twice, maybe. But um, something I wouldn't mind revisiting and uh, checking out. The Joe Dante cult, I think, is something that's kind of been growing in recent years. Uh, You know, the guy made a lot of great movies, but maybe didn't have a great, you know, a tourist uh, reputation. But I think that's something that's been growing recently as people keep going back to look at movies like gremlins like matinee like a lot of movies he made some great stuff but uh this was one of his very first films um, while he was kind of coming up through the ranks of the roger corman school and was tasked with making a blatant jaws knockoff which he did but did very successfully so uh that is a piranha it is streaming on netflix for instant screaming ah ah, ah! And what's our third film available on Instant Screaming? Ah! <laughs> our third film is Pulse. Ah! Uh, it's a 2001 horror film from ah! Kiyoshi Kurosawa. 
I'm really scared. I'm sorry. That's all right. I'll try to control it. This is a really scary film, actually. This one, uh, I have to admit, I've never seen. Yeah. I've heard it's absolutely terrifying. It's really frightening. Uh, remade in 2006. Uh, yes, yeah, so, uh, steer clear of that one, the American remake. Uh, this one is about ghosts invading the land of the living via the internet, which manages to be much more frightening than that sounds. Mm. Uh, I think in particular, this was one of the defining kind of big films of the J-horror right. wave that kind of came in and then made all ghosts and all movies look like women with hair on their face. Ah! Um, yes, but the, the ghosts in this one are particularly frightening because they're so other. Okay. They're not even necessarily like the kind of ghosts who seem intent on frightening you mm -hmm. as much as just they're so alien and there is something that's like just very troubling about that mm -hmm. so uh it's it's a it's a scary film and you know i i watched it the first time with my hands over my eyes so maybe this time i'll take one hand off <laughs> and watch just with one yeah. hand over over both eyes it's interesting that we didn't even intend it as we were picking them out but not only are they all horror movies they're all horror movies that have remakes. remakes yeah yeah interesting oh how that worked out well which original movie that was later turned into a remake should we review on the next spine-chilling episode of Film Spotting Streaming Video Unit? You can send your pick to svu at filmspottingsvu.com, or you can enter into the poll on the right-hand side of the page at filmspottingsvu.com. Your vote must be received by Monday, October 14th at noon. After that, we'll announce the winner at our Twitter account, twitter.com slash filmspottingsvu, and you'll have all that week to watch the film and then join us for our terrifying conversation on our next episode, which will be on or around Tuesday, October 22nd! filmspottingsvu.com is also where you can find our show archive, as well as a list of direct links to all the movies we discussed on the episode. The Film Spotting SVU remix theme song is by Vince Vandal. Listen to more of Vince's work at vincevandal.com. And we'll be back in two terrifying weeks with more yes. movie recommendations and the movie review you pick. And in the meantime, you can follow us on Twitter at Allison Wilmore and at Matt Singer. And you can follow the show at Film Spotting SVU. That's where we announce the winner of each show's listener's choice and where we share more streaming suggestions from you, the SVU listeners. For Film Spotting SVU, I'm Allison Wilmore. And I'm Matt Singer. Thanks for listening. <laughs>